0: cool man first of all thanks for having me on it's uh a real pleasure and i've been looking forward to uh sitting down and doing this with you for a while so we've kind of chatted about it off and on a few times so it's good to to get to sit down and and do it uh you know, I, I got to train with my father actually. I did some taekwondo when I was about seven years old. And uh my dad uh was an on air personality for K T V Channel Seven. And uh he and I and, and he had actually done some martial arts in Canada. You know, I'm originally from uh from from Canada. I was born in Canada, I was born in uh uh uh, Fort William, it was the Twin Cities back then, Port Arthur Fort William, and then later the name was changed to Thunder Bay. so uh, I'm technically now I'm from Thunder Bay, Ontario. but uh, when I was born there it was Fort William. Anyway, my father uh, had done some training in Canada a little bit, and uh, I guess through the TV station had met uh, had met somebody that was teaching uh, uh, teaching martial arts in uh, Little Rock. And at that time, we lived in North Little Rock and the only the, the school that we were going to was off Mapleville Pike. Uh, Finest Stelnut and Fred Van Akron were running the school over there then. And uh, so we, uh, uh, we trained for a while and then uh, my dad's hours changed. He was uh, you know with the TV station and uh, kind of precluded us from being able to continue um just simply work you know got got in the way and uh but it was a taste of martial arts and uh i uh it kind of stuck with me and then uh so developed kind of a lifelong uh passion and, and interest i got back into it as a as a senior in high school um i, I kind of was dabbling at, uh, with some boxing and then uh I uh signed up at a uh, just as I graduated from high school actually I signed up and uh, did a summer session uh prior to attending Baylor University. I uh so I started in taekwondo, actually even went and competed in a open tournament uh at by the end of the summer and and uh then I was 17, I graduated from high school a year early. So I got to uh uh, I, but at 17, you were in the adult division, competed, and got my first trophy a couple of months after starting, fought uh, fought uh, down in Pine Bluff, Arkansas in an open tournament. And then uh, went to Baylor, started training in Shotokan. Trained in Shotokan while I was at Baylor during the school year. Came back to Arkansas, uh, did taekwondo during the summer, went back to Baylor. Uh, Resumed the Shotokan, um, decided to, uh, I laid out of school when, uh, the fall semester, I guess that would have been uh, fall on spring 80, fall 80, then uh, laid out, uh, laid out of school for a semester and just worked, and then came back to Arkansas and uh, uh, resumed my uh, education at UALR and resumed my training, uh, in Taekwondo and have been with it ever since. So
1: that's, uh, that's it. What, uh, so was it just, you had doing Taekwondo when you were younger with your dad that kind of got you back involved with it? Did, was there, when you were doing Shotokan, did you have a preference to one or the other one was more available than the other? Why did you ultimately settle on
0: Taekwondo? Uh, There wasn't, uh, well proxemics you know the taekwondo studio was a lot closer to the house um i had more friends that were training in uh, taekwondo um uh, there was a guy named bull rogers that was a fairly famous shotokan practitioner back in the day he fought on pka fought some of the legends like bad brad hefton and he uh i mean bull was a very successful uh uh shotokan guy but uh This gym was pretty much across town, and uh, I, you know, it just wasn't convenient, and uh, my, the guys, you know, because I had started in taekwondo, I mean, I didn't know anything when I signed up, I didn't know anything about styles, I mean, you know, as far as I'd known, I had just done karate, you know, as a kid, I really didn't know anything about, I mean, now I do, because I've researched it, but back then, it was, you know, martial arts. That's all I knew. And, uh, so, and, and again, convenience, I mean, you know, I didn't know one st- I didn't know differences in styles or anything like that. So, uh, and uh, the thing that I had a, a real traditionalist, uh, for an instructor at, in Baylor, uh, and and, you know, looking back at it, there was probably some really good things cause such an adherence to fundamentals but it wasn't as exciting. We didn't, you know, I mean, all we did was we drilled and we did katas, you know, we did floor drills, we did katas, and then we'd go to tournaments when well, we weren't sparring, I mean, very much. And so, you know, katas were more designed for self-defense and weren't designed for sparring. They're two different things, you know, I mean, sparring develops attributes that would let the technique in a kata actually work. So it's 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 apples and oranges if it's not train properly, and uh, I know that my success in the tournament, you know, I mean, hell, I, I stepped out my first open tournament and did pretty good, blazed, uh, won several fights, and I was going in the AOK, but back then, I mean, safety equipment, when I was fighting on the open tournament circuit in Texas, safety equipment was optional, and if you got knocked out, you'd get disqualified for being unable to continue. They'd go, you know, warning, excessive contact, disqualified, unable to continue, and they dragged you off. So it was a a little bit different era. Groin kicks were legal. If you hit the ground you had three seconds to follow up with a with a strike. Um, so it was just kind of a different era in the in the martial arts. You know, it was kind of the the end of the blood and guts uh kind of era. So I, I did like the Taekwondo better just because we were doing more sparring and we were actually preparing. And this was, it's funny because the school I got into, it was kind of before the commercialization of the uh, ATA, if you will, you know what I mean? They, uh, uh, they ran a little bit of a different model in the late 70s and early 80s. Um, and then it started, uh, they started transforming and became uh started becoming more and more commercial um but this was pre-karate kid days you know before the first movie it was kind of pre the uh daycare taekwondo if you will you know i mean it was it was just a it was a it was a different uh, different time so uh i had it was funny though um uh, Some of the guys that were training uh, at the Shotokan school uh, were my sparring partners when I had my first kickboxing match. Those guys, uh, there were some really tough Shotokan players in uh, Central Arkansas back then, and some of them actually became really good friends because I had trained in some Shotokan. Uh, I cross-trained with those guys. And, uh, I was going to the open tournaments. I wasn't just going to the Taekwondo tournaments. I was also going to open tournaments and, uh, I was competing. Oh, like in-
1: open style, like a uh, karate Taekwondo practitioner. Yeah.
0: Kung Fu. Just uh, when they say open tournaments, it's open invitational. So, you know, there's association tournaments like the JKA, uh, the Japanese karate association might run a, just a Shotokan only or, a. Kung Fu uh, organization might run a Kung Fu or a Wushu only tournament, Taekwondo, certainly with a lot of different organizations would run organization specific tournaments just for their people. But then uh, also there, and then you had the open tournaments, which were open to, you know, all practitioners, you would have hard, you know, and they would have hard style katas, you know, hard forms and then soft style, the Kung Fu type patterns and they would divide up, or they'd have different divisions, um, and then you know you you fought. So that uh, the open tournament circuit, there was a lot of taekwondo practitioners from the major taekwondo organizations back then, uh, which in Arkansas were going to be pretty much the uh, ATA and the USTF, um, and then later the NTFA. But uh, a lot of the a lot of those the uh, organizations. They just did. They were, and it was part of it was their business model. You know, they they pushed their organizational tournaments, and they didn't uh, they didn't compete in the open circuit. Whereas I actually ended up later on promoted a tournament on the on the open circuit. I was the uh, the Arkansas Karate Circuit. I was the uh, vice president of the Arkansas Karate Circuit. Keith Kirk, a guy by the name of Keith Kirk, was the president, and I was the vice president and uh, so I was promoting uh, open tournaments. In fact, I found a tournament flyer that I had from 1997 where uh, I was promoting a tournament and I was running a grappling division. So nice. it's probably one of the earliest grappling tournaments in the United States, you know? I mean, that was only four years post the first UFC, so kind of kind of interesting.
1: Like, yeah, I know you've thrown out some dates, and, and you were 17 when this, when you were, but when did, when did Taekwondo like become so popular? I mean, obviously when you were a kid, you were doing it, um, comes about in the fifties, if I'm not mistaken, uh, in or, you know, out of Korea, but, um, when did it become so popular? And, and you know, you talk about kind of pre karate kid, was there like a, a surges with their peaks and valleys?
0: Uh, I- it surged in popularity. I mean, it was a little more of a dynamic. I uh, feel like it was pretty dynamic. It caught the public's attention. because You had guys coming over from Korea, jumping and spinning and, um, you know, doing the flashy board breaks and, you know, the demonstrations and the competitions were the guys really, really talented. I mean, some of the early uh, practitioners that came over and were, promoting the art, and they were doing challenge matches. I mean, you know, it's kind of funny. Same sort of thing that uh, the Gracies did to promote Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, the Koreans were doing to promote Taekwondo. And then you started having waves of guys coming over that uh, uh, they, were, they were pushing it. And, uh, you know, the joke was they'd, they'd get on the airplane of first degree and get off the airplane uh, grandmaster. grandmaster. Um, so let me silence this. Uh, so that, uh, that made a difference, um, with, uh, with the, uh, uh, martial arts. And I'm sorry, man, I don't no, you're know. Fine. This, uh, turn this off just a second. Is okay maybe that'll quiet it down i'll check that later i forgot all about my uh you know since we've been in isolation and shut down the phone just doesn't ring that much you know I, i'm here uh i'm coming in while uh while everything's shut down i've been coming in and we've been painting and cleaning closets and just trying to do busy work staying busy and man, the phone almost never rings. And here I, I sit down, uh, I sit down and it's like, oh my goodness, there's a, uh, there's a phone call. Anyway, to get back to your question about when it became so popular, these guys came over and I think they had, uh, dynamic marketing. Um, a lot of the, a lot of the karate schools and, and I, I it's kind of regional, different areas of the country. I've noticed, you know, Kempo's real big and, in certain parts of the country, Shotokan. but some of the hardcore hardline traditionalists, you know, training in garages or training in YMCAs. And uh, it was almost like, oh, you're not supposed to, an attitude of making money with your art was horrible. And, um, you know, then you start having people coming over and thought it was perfectly fine to, uh, you know, spread the art and spread a love of what they did. And, oh, by the way, they wanted to make a living. Um, I think the popularity, of the martial arts after the Karate Kid, um, surged in, in, in across all styles. I think everybody benefited from it. But I think what happened at that point, started seeing, uh, people catering to the children's market in a way they never had before and to make it more commercially viable. They started watering down their martial art in a way that had never been done before, you know. So you, you, you had people, uh, of course, June, a guy by the name of June Reeves, considered you know the father of American Taekwondo. Uh, he invented safety equipment, and they started using safety equipment, and then um, for the tournaments, and then headgear, which there were more tournament deaths and point karate in the. 70s and 80s because guys weren't wearing headgear they would get hit and knocked out and then the back of their head would hit a gym floor yeah contra coup concussion that was uh you know brain hemorrhaging people there were several point karate deaths you know i tell people all the time i actually knocked out more people doing point fighting than i did when i was kickboxing so uh you know some of the old old school tournaments you know people were getting in there and getting after it but I guess to make it more for the masses, they started kind of getting away from uh, that, and then uh, you had a, a generic, kind of a watering down uh, of uh, a lot of the a lot of the schools, just to make it, you know, more palatable to the masses. Not everybody wants to get spin heel kicked in the face or you know punched really hard, and, and uh, so they uh, started kind of slacking back on it a little bit. But that's, you know, and then you had organizations that were pushing, you know I mean? I think it's interesting. One of the differences uh, between uh, different arts, like I always should have trained hard. I'm proud of every black belt and every art that I've received, because um, I trained really, really hard, applied myself and dedicated myself to, uh, to learning. But hindsight being 2020, you know I mean? there were guys in taekwondo and one of the things that led to to water down taekwondo is that you had guys that were making black belts in 18 to 24 months and then they were made instructors. Well, I look at it like man, 18 to 24 months in my jiu-jitsu program you're a white belt, you know, maybe if you're really, you know, talented, there's maybe you're a blue belt. You know, I mean, for the guys that are putting in the, gr- the grind and competing and training and getting the hours in the mat, I mean, certainly you could be a blue belt that same amount of time, but uh, you're not running an academy. And so there was, I mean, I've I've worked on details for longer than two years. You know, what I mean, just minute little bitty aspects of something, and I don't th- feel like you get the big picture. So you you know the further from the source the muddier the stream and uh, you didn't didn't necessarily have uh master level martial artists teaching classes now does every beginner need to be taught by a master level martial artist and i'm going to tell you flat out no you know, but it's nice to have a master level martial artist or a high ranking martial artist somebody with years and years and years of experience that can kind of guide and oversee a generic program. You know, what I mean, it's kind of like being the head coach, you know, on a football team. There's strength coaches and, and running coaches and specialty you know, quarterback and back and lineman. And, you know, there's so many different coaches on a football team that are hands on with the players, but you've got to have a a head coach that's making sure everybody's kind of working together harmoniously. And, uh, there's a lot of those schools just didn't have that. And, and I I feel like that led to kind of the watering down of, uh, of some of the taekwondo because some of the old school taekwondo was pretty hardcore.
1: Yeah. I mean, it sounds like in some of the stories I've heard about, uh, some of the earlier headgear being invented, it just being like the, the sort of piece that goes over the, just the back of your head, yeah. uh, to avoid that was kind of like the first generation, um, protector. I'm sure you're referring to, to try and mitigate that problem of people busting their head. Oh, for sure. Wait, did tournaments just not uh, – was it not commonplace to have mats for, for taekwondo events? I mean
0: – No. No. Dude, I uh, – I don't think I ever competed on a mat in any karate tournament. Um, and I stayed active until the, uh, like 94, um, back in the day, fifth degree was kind of like your retirement rank. And when I got, uh, received my fifth degree, um, after I got my fifth degree, which was in 94, I, uh, you know, kind of had stopped competing. I mean, I was competing internationally in Taekwondo. I was a, uh five-time open circuit state champion. I was the men's third and fourth degree black. And this was a like the tournament circuit, like you had an open tournament circuit. So you competed in tournaments and you'd get so many points for a first place, so many points for a second, so many points for a third. And then whoever had the most points at the end of the year was crowned state champion. Um, then uh, in either form or fighting. And then in the USTF, the United States Taekwondo Federation, In the men's third and fourth degree black belt division i was a fourth degree black belt for five years i was national champion four years in runner-up i missed it by two points one year which still kind of sticks with me it calls me but i had a pretty good run while i was competing and it is so i would compete some weekends i'd compete open circuit some weekends you know and then i would compete closed circuit then i was also doing the uh for a while i did kind of played with some of the Olympic taekwondo stuff, which I wasn't really a fan of, but I competed in it. It was the state gold medal winner when I actually went to the Olympic trials in 88. Um, I uh, was also kickboxing. So, I mean, literally, you know, go to a tournament and just have to look and see what the rules allowed. You know, were groin kicks allowed? Were foot sweeps allowed? Was, you know, finishing on the ground allowed? Did you get some of the tournaments to give you three points for a jump kick to the head? two points for a jump kick to the body, two points kick to the head, one point kick to the body. Well, that's going to affect your strategy. Um, All punches being one point. um, Some would allow you, if you did a jump punch to the head, you got two points. Some tournaments, everything was one point. Punches, kicks, everything was one point. And, of course, when groin kicking was allowed um, in some of the tournaments, you, you didn't you didn't pick your leg up and just kind of dangle it out there to kick somebody in the head because somebody would snap you in the groin real hard and it would change up your, uh, change up your philosophy about kicking, you know, uh, you you had to, you had to really make sure that that kick was set up. You didn't just pick your leg up and start firing. So, you know, how many, the point, the scoring system, just like it does in anything is going to dictate your strategy you know as far as scoring your uh, points how you're going to how you're going to how you're going to do time management and and everything else when you're out there competing it's going to be based on points so that was uh, that was pretty interesting but got to do a lot of a uh, lot of competing and mainly you know most tournaments were held in high school gyms you know you'd go to a or maybe a boys club gym community center gym high school gym and so we always competed on gym floors. That's what we competed on. So it just wasn't wasn't a lot of mats.
1: What were the weight classes like? Did they differ? Like points differ? I know in jiu-jitsu tournaments, it's
0: and if
1: you looked at all the arts that we go take people to compete at, there's no commonality. Yeah, so back in the in the
0: day, com- this is what they would do. Okay, tall people over here, short people over there. Okay, you four are lightweights. You three are the middleweights, you four are the are the heavyweights. So they'd kind of line you up. Now, so if you were real tall, but you were real skinny, think uh you know Caleb Plank. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean he'd be in the heavyweight division weighing a buck forty-five or a buck fifty, you know? Oh, man. Uh, I I was I was usually in the – I was a lightweight um, uh, back then. And typically, I mean, usually the lightweight division was 155 and below or maybe 160 and below. And then, say, 160 to 190 might be – or 180 uh, would be the uh, middleweight and then heavyweight would be 190 and above or 180 and above. I mean – the divisions were pretty wide. Um, now it depended, like you know, the international competitions. Uh, you would stand on a scale. I mean, there were times that you you know kickboxing. You would stand on a scale, but uh, a lot of times the point tournament divisions were, you know, you guys are lightweights, you guys are middleweights, you guys are heavyweights, and then at the end, you know, grand champion was like our ab- was like absolutes, right? So. You know, if you won lightweight fighting, then you would fight the middleweight and heavyweight winner. Some of the bigger tournaments might run more weight classes. um, But typically, you know, sometimes it was just lightweight and heavyweight. You'd have two weight divisions. You know, sometimes you'd have three. A lot of times it was just based on the number of competitors.
1: What about, like, so you said you were winning different state, national titles, regional titles. What did that qualify you for? If you were a state champion, did you get seating for the next tournament season or anything I
0: like got a that? bunch of really cool jackets. <laughs> <laughs> nice. You know, I would get uh, – no, it didn't, you know, qualify you for nothing. I mean, you can take everything I told you and a buck and a half will get you a cup of coffee at most cases. Well, I
1: didn't know if, like, when the – uh taekwondo came in on the olympic level if like you know with the usa boxing or how if they tied anything there to try and link regional stuff the, to go, national
0: in 88 this the so there were two paths back then i don't know how it is now but back then there were two paths um you could be uh, uh wtf cookie kwan uh affiliate um and or you could be AAU, and uh, I was a I went through the AAU, so I went that was the AAU, uh, Amateur Athletic Union. I mean, like the people that run boxing and everything else, right? So, um, I I was the AAU gold medal winner, and so I wasn't cookie quond because being ITF WTF and ITF for. It's like the difference between North and South Korea. And I had no idea any of that. ITF was first, but then WTF broke away and blah, blah, blah. And they were stylistically really, uh, I mean, had, were different. ITF was a little more like kickboxing. WTF, the Olympic style, they got – they tried to be very stylized and kind of became a sport unto itself. Think – pre Olympic judo and Olympic judo. Pre-Olympic judo was a lot more self-defense oriented and, you know, had a whole bunch of techniques in it that no longer is done in Olympic judo. You know, um, it became stylized for the sport. So that's what happened with WTF. Um, you know, they took almost you can punch to the body, you can't punch to the head. Uh it became a very sophisticated game of kicking tag. Now, I mean, you can get knocked out with those kicks. And at the nationals, the year that I went, so being the state gold medal winner allowed you to go to the nationals, which was like the first leg of the Olympic trials. And then you had to win nationals, and then you competed with these others. It was two or three steps on down the road. So when you say Olympic trials, you got to kind of, It was the first leg. I mean, technically it was, but it was just the first leg. It wasn't like a a guarantee. Um, But you would see people there that had no business being there. And you would see some spectacular knockouts. You know, guys getting, you know, flying side kicked in the face or spin heel kicked or ax kicked. I mean, they were – I saw a lot of people get totally just wrecked at that uh, tournament. But then when you start getting up into the higher levels, I mean, you weren't seeing – you don't see those kind of things because it becomes jockeying for position. And then, you know, fights, Olympic taekwondo fights are one one nothing, you know, 2-1. Uh, it becomes very difficult to score, uh, you know, those higher levels because the guys are so good at timing and distancing and movement that you don't see some of the flashy stuff that you see when you see somebody who's really good fighting somebody that really doesn't belong on that stage you know i mean it would be like a a brand new brazilian jiu jitsu black belt that had never competed before yeah he's a black belt and you know he's got 10 years in and he's good but he hasn't been in the meat grinder competing at the highest levels of the sport and so you know you put that black belt in against a Marcelo Garcia kind of level guy that's just been a a grinder his whole life man it's it's it ain't apples and apples you know and so that's what happens sometimes at some of those uh at some of those tournaments but i find amongst the really really good guys olympic taekwondo wasn't really all that exciting i mean it's never taken off it's it doesn't get a lot of play on tv when they do do the olympics um it's so highly stylized. It's just not all that exciting. You know I mean? That, uh, I don't, I'm not a fan of the, uh, of the Olympic Taekwondo when you, when you take people that are watching like an MMA fight or watching a boxing match. And when people understand what's going on, it's just like point karate has been around forever and it has never elevated in popularity because it's hard to follow. You know I mean? it's hard to pick out. You can see somebody that's getting dominated end up winning a fight because he played the game better and was able to score points. Or, you know, somebody, it's like a game of tags. Somebody jump up and do a back fist to the top of the head. Well, we all know that's not going to stop anybody. And he scores first, and the other guy throws a right to the body that caves him and drops him. And then the guy that did the little pity pat to the top of the head scored the point first. And you're, to people watching, they're going, yeah, but that guy just got knocked down. You know, what's, what's up? So, point karate has never really taken off. I mean, it's been around for years and years and years, and it's never taken off uh, because it's hard to watch. I mean, it's hard to understand what's going on. And I feel like the same thing is true. I mean, just like Olympic judo. Let's face it, it's been around forever, but you don't ever see it on TV. I mean, you know, it's never attained. For the people that are doing it, it's a lot of fun but it's hard for spectators watching it to know what's going on. And it, it hasn't evolved in popularity. And I feel like that's what happened to some of the Olympic Taekwondo, which is why I'm, I'm not a huge fan of it.
1: Why do you think some of those rules came about? Like, for example, uh, you mentioned, uh, punches to the face. Like one thing that always was super, uh, puzzling to me is like me taken i if i had to choose between getting punched in the face by you now no offense i know you punch really well uh we're a spinning hook kick i'm gonna choose the punch
0: you yeah. know what i'm saying Well, and it's because though think about it this way though is that e- it's easier it's easier and quicker to develop up your hands than it is your feet so it takes more training so the idea was is to force people to develop the art which is being able to use your feet to kick. So the tournaments, if if you're not allowed to punch to the face, and then all you can do is kick. Well, you're going to develop your kicks. So the rules were designed to highlight the kicking aspect of Taekwondo. That's exactly – they didn't want people. And that's why when you see two guys, like the way they clinch in Olympic Taekwondo, you got guys with their hands down chest to chest and nothing's happening. Um, they're They're – denying access to the hogu for that style it you know for that rule set that makes sense but if you're thinking well why aren't those guys hitting each other it makes no sense so the rules were designed to to get people to to kick you know that's that's what it was all about
1: was that did that come along with the olympic transition was that in any way to differentiate it from boxing or or
0: oh yeah no to differentiate it not only from boxing but from other styles of karate, you know, they, uh, they were trying to, this is a totally unique art and this is what we do and this is how we want it done. And um, it was to differentiate. And so again, when you look at the rifts, though, because I was on the uh, ITF USA team in uh, 1987 and fought in Athens, Greece. And so there, uh, ITF stylist, it was more like kickboxing you punched it was continuous you know they said go It wasn't stop and go It wasn't like when you hit somebody a judge at your point and then look for clarification from all the judges around the ring it was you continuous continuous sparring continuous fighting so uh i like the itf style um because it was it was more like kickboxing um Whereas the WTF was just a stylized game to to show no, and it was full contact. I mean, the kicks were you know if you didn't kick hard enough to deliver what was termed trembling shock, which meant you just got the crap kicked out of you. Um, if it wasn't a solid kick, it wasn't supposed to count. So that uh, that's how that developed. But I, I our roots stylistically. Um, you know, when I started, it was ATA, and I didn't know anything about ATA back then. And then the guy I was working for, uh, when I came back from, uh, from Texas, I uh, started working at a Nautilus Plus Taekwondo fitness center for a guy named Jim Boteen. And uh, I, was, I was a Nautilus instructor. And then when I, uh, and I was assisting, and I started assisting in kids' classes as a blue belt, um started teaching the noon class by myself as a red belt as a plain red belt i was on the black belt demonstration team for the united states taekwondo federation i was the only red belt on the de- black belt demo team and uh, uh i was working for mr botine when he broke away from the uh, ata and uh, formed the united states taekwondo federation which was interesting because there was another united states taekwondo federation that was uh here in the United States, it was headed up by a guy named Chuck Seraph, and uh, that uh, that proved interesting later on down the down the road. But uh, we were under when we went; we're on the ITF USA team. It was uh, Chuck Seraph's USTF because they were the ITF delegates, in uh, our USTF. And we were kind of chosen by a guy named P.K. Cho. So we just had a small group of people that also got to compete as part of the U.S. delegation to the ITF uh, World Championships in, uh, in Athens, Greece in 1987. And then we ended up uh, affiliating with a guy by the name of Park Chung-tae. Um, Grandmaster Park uh, was on the original, was one of the ori- on the original uh, ITF demonstration team um, under General Hung Che who coined the term Taekwondo. And uh, he ended up breaking away and forming uh, the Global Taekwondo Federation, GTF. And so uh, we, uh, the organiz- Taekwondo organization, USTF, the, that I was with, um, ended up going with uh, Grandmaster Park and uh, we became internationally aligned with uh, the Global Taekwondo Federation. And uh, so I was team captain of the U.S. team that fought in Moscow, Russia in 93. And uh, we I also we hosted uh, the Russians uh, here in the States, and then we went over there, and then they came back over here in 94. So uh, and I was uh, team captain for those events. And, uh, it was good competition. Those guys hit hard.
1: Yeah. What was it like? Uh, now, we've talked about this a little bit in the past, just you and I uh, on the road and different places, but what was it like being in Russia right after the cold war had come to an end?
0: Well, what was interesting is that there was a revolution going on in 93, the Russia, the, there was uh, a Russian tank shot the Russian white house. And that happened while we were there. And so we got to compete in the Olympic Stadium that was built, that the Americans boycotted in 1980. So the, uh, we were, I think, some of the first Americans to compete in that, in that Olympic Stadium. Um, we, uh, but we literally, like the tank that shot the Russian White House went past my, our hotel and uh we could hear the machine gun fire bop, 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 you know And that i had a picture prior to it being shot and then when i got back to little rock there was a picture on the it was the democrat gazette then that there was another picture of the russian white house and the guy that took that picture had to have been standing in almost the same place i had been standing when i took my photo so i had a before photo and an after photo and you could see you know the the burn and the hole where the russian where the uh, tank had shot it and you could see the pop marks from the 50 cows that had been lower whatever caliber they used on their tanks you know tearing chewing that building up so but it was interesting is that you know when you're really hungry, it's kind of Maslow's hierarchy of motives. when you're really really hungry, you don't really care a lot about international pol or national politics. You know, we saw people just younger people really seemed to like us, the old timers, not so much, but the the young people did and it was uh, all about uh, all about being able to have something to eat. you know I saw lines going, saw this one day, I saw a truck that had potatoes in the back of it, and the line went down the street and around the corner, and I thought, man, the people around the corner ain't getting a potato out of the back of that truck, so it was, uh, it was different. They, uh, the people there, I I tell you, the Russians, because we had hosted them here in the States, the, the, our competitors, our people that we were competing against, couldn't have been nicer and couldn't have been more gracious, you know, so it was interesting. We went to a, there was a McDonald's in Moscow and we went to that McDonald's and I uh, took a picture of me doing a sidekick in Red Square and we uh, we called the hogs. We almost got too much attention um, brought on to ourselves because we're over there calling the hogs and, and they, you know, all of a sudden all these security guys, they had no idea what we were doing, started coming around, but it was a, uh, it was a very, it was fascinating. It was definitely, definitely interesting.
1: Yeah, that would be a very interesting time to go. Um just, you know, 93. Uh so I mean, Taekwondo's taken you to some amazing places you mentioned uh Greece, you mentioned Russia. Uh that was one thing I wanted to ask you about is just some of the other places Taekwondo has taken you. Um fond memories what have you? I mean, any any other stories you would uh you would want to highlight?
0: Well, I You know, getting to go, of course, being inducted into the official Taekwondo Hall of Fame. Um, That happened last summer, and that was in uh, Bangkok, Thailand. And what I thought was interesting is that I had a photographer come in, take a bunch of pictures of me in the traditional Taekwondo dobok, doing some traditional Taekwondo stuff. But the picture that they used when they put me up on the screen there was uh, of me in a black, Brazilian jiu-jitsu uniform, which Taekwondo normally wears white, in a Muay Thai stance. And I laughed because I thought, well, that sums up my entire career, just to collect a gazelle, you know? I mean, uh, I, thought, I thought that was really cool. Um, it was an honor to get to go over there, having, you know, with inter- internationally, like I said, two, six gold medals and two silver medals, um, competing, uh, competing against the Russian teams, competing in international events traveling demoing i mean you know i've had so many so many good times i spent a lot of time on the road got to demo when the the west coast demo team ernie reyes jr oh uh, wow. i've seen them perform at, uh,
1: several times
0: yeah we did a demo with them at magic springs um so they would demo and then the next time 30 minutes later we would demo and then they would demo then we would demo we did that all day down there that was really uh, cool going to Thailand was cool. I learned that the number one sport number one participation sport in the world, um, is soccer. I mean, hands down, because anywhere you go, I mean, you don't need anything. You know, you get a dozen kids, two dozen kids together. One of them's going to have a ball and all you need is some space for them to run around and, uh, and, uh, and compete. So that, uh, that's, a done deal but the number two participation sport in the world based on participation is uh based on numbers is taekwondo there's over a hundred million people worldwide that do taekwondo and i had no idea i mean i didn't even know there was that many people internationally that did uh that did taekwondo and again it's you don't need anything but space you know i mean if you've got you've got a place, you got to have somebody kind of lead a class, but you know, there's not a lot required to be able to, to punch and kick, you know? So, um, that's, I thought was, was pretty interesting. So that was, uh, that was an interesting thing to learn. The, uh, and it was, you know, I mean, for me, I, and like we mentioned earlier, I didn't get into the martial arts to be a stylist. I got into the martial arts because as a teenager, you know, I, I was a small, skinny kid that wanted to keep his lunch money. I mean, I was a little guy. And uh, so I didn't know anything about style. Uh, I just just wanted to learn martial arts, you know, want to learn karate, want to learn how to defend myself. And as time has gone on, um, let me see if I can turn this down. so as time has gone on uh i've learned that you know you've got striking arts and you've got grappling arts and then of course studying uh uh i was a big still am a voracious reader and uh i i studied you know bruce lee's stuff and uh have trained with so many uh different people that um I, I kind of used Taekwondo as my gateway drug. <laughs> I mean, it was what launched me into my martial arts and, you know, I mean, I, I kind of always adopted that philosophy of out fighting, infighting, trapping, grappling, and on the mat, just kind of the ranges of fighting. And, um, but as, is having an anchor art for me personally, I think as far as having an anchor art for being smaller, um, uh, developing up, there was a time I was pretty quick with my legs and, uh, It was a great – it was a great art to begin with. Um, I think paired uh, the Taekwondo-style kicking, paired with uh, some Western boxing, pretty formidable. There have been a lot of really successful kickboxers that have done that.
1: Um, Even in MMA, you would look at people like Anthony Pettis, Benson Henderson, not on top – now. I mean, Anthony Pettis still is. I mean, he's right there in the top ten of his division, Benson Henderson's. You know, he's kind of, I don't know, he's Past moved over ta- to Bellator and his prime. But, man, those guys were some amazing taekwondo stylists in the cage.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They could bring out, and uh, I think people get, <sighs> taekwondo means literally the way of or the art of the hand and foot. And so, uh, learning how to kick and, and learning how to punch, and then I I didn't want to get too defined – by by style, I mean, my Shotokan influence, I think, in, in some of my uh, adherence to stancing, my, my fundamental front kick, front thrust kick, uh, I think I still credit to my time in Shotokan. Um, uh, you know, it's interesting, my uh, time, I was certainly influenced by Bill Wallace. I've been influenced by Joe Lewis. Uh, been influenced by so many different arts, Thai boxing, a guy by the name of BJ Johnson that worked with me, and Muay Thai was my Thai coach, uh, especially after I had, had done a kickboxing match. Um, after my first match, I hooked up with BJ. and, and uh, but, but Taekwondo was a good vessel for me to start putting everything on. I mean, having a having a core art, and for me, it just happened to be Taekwondo. But having a solid art that you could then learn how to expand and grow and work with was really—I uh, feel like—really important. So, it, it's been a blessing. You know, I've—I've—I've I've, I've loved it. Uh, my fl- my first love was kicking. I mean, I still love to kick. You know, I, I've. I worked really, really hard to develop some flexibility. I had a, a good set of legs. I mean, it kind of fit and, you know, I'm, body structure and body types kind of do determine, you know, to a certain extent, your the success. I mean, you look at a lot of amateur boxers tend to be, you know, fairly tall and lanky and they've got reach. Um, they did a study, an empirical study of boxing. There's more history on boxing data than anything. And they looked at, uh, if you were 20-0 and with 20 knockouts, you had a real high power rating, you know? So they looked at, uh, they gave you, assigned you a power rating and then old school uh, film reels for like six, I I believe, 16 frames to a second. And so they could measure your hand on each frame, how far it traveled frame to frame to frame, and they could uh, assign you a speed rating. Okay, so you'd have a speed rating and a power rating and then tail of the tape, you know, because they always – they measure that. And of those three variables, speed, power, and reach, reach was the single most important variable in determining the outcome of a fight. Obviously, Mike Tyson, of course, was a huge exception to that. I mean, there's lots of exceptions, but, you know, so you get guys that are tall and lanky. You know, they tend to do well in some of the striking arts, uh, especially, you know – with the hands punching. Um, look at guys that are short and squat. They tend to be brutal in judo because you can't get under their hips. You know what I mean? Guys that are, you know, low slung to the ground. So you find that, I, and I guess my point is just that some, certain styles, and certain fighting types definitely favor certain kind of builds, you know? Um, for me being, uh, I wasn't stupid tall wasn't wasn't uh wasn't real heavy um and I felt like you know man if I can learn how to kick can be pretty quick not too many people have arms the same size as my legs and if I can learn how to be efficient with my kicking I'll probably be able to defend myself against somebody who's bigger and stronger and then uh you know i i I've worked hard over the years to really develop my skills in my boxing and my wrist locking and my grappling, you know, and these other, uh, other arts, but I was really blessed to have something that kind of spoke to me as a young man and got me hooked. And yet, I'm um, I'm all, I'm really happy though that I, I wasn't a Taekwondo only. I still have a lot of love for Taekwondo, but to me, it was, it was a means to an end. And the end was to be a complete martial artist. It wasn't to be a stylist it was to be a martial artist and to be able to pair, you know, sticks, knives and 45s. I mean, you know, uh, I want to be well-rounded and, and have, uh, and want to be, you know I mean? So uh, I continue with that philosophy to this day.
1: Excellent. Well, and that'll bring us, I think, to some future episodes, right? Cause, um, while we've really stayed on point with Taekwondo today, and my last question, I kind of had to ask you, uh, which we went right into is what what else did taekwondo lead you to. And um definitely want to sit down with you uh in the future and talk about your Japanese jiu-jitsu and uh training in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, all your trips to Brazil, the Joe Lewis and Superfoot side of your training, uh Boxing Kickboxing MMA, self-defense. I mean, I saw your concealed uh commercial you put out the other day and Man, I think that it's, it's really awesome to just individualize and talk about all these and get your, your personal history with them.
0: Well, thank you very much. And, it's, you know, I, uh, I, like I said, Taekwondo's been so good to me and great moments, you know, uh, beating the Russian heavyweight in a power-breaking contest that I was just kind of thrown out there in, you know. And I, I smacked six boards with a knife hand strike. That's a moment that will live with me forever. Um, and yet, without taekwondo, there wouldn't have been a Joe Lewis. There wouldn't have been Bill Wallace. There wouldn't have been Burl Parsons and the weeping style. There wouldn't have been Tony Manuel and Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So, you know, I owe a lot of really, really good times to my, uh, to my taekwondo. And I, I, I just think it's great. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to sit and visit and, and share some of these experiences with you.
1: Yes, sir. Well, hey, I appreciate your time, and uh, I'll be talking to you real soon.
0: Great. Look forward All to right. it. Be Have safe. a good day.
1: Be well.